are new and visiting us for the first time, whether you've been going to church for most of your life or whether you're just checking things out. Uh, We are really glad you're here, and what we're all about here is not following a set of ideas or adhering to a philosophy, but we're all about following a person, Jesus Christ. And our desire is for everybody here, regardless of who you are, to have a warm place where you can see what it means to follow him. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve. I lead the Clarendon campus that leads on that meets on Sunday evenings, and every now and then, Pastor Jason Connor and I swap pulpits, and I come here, and he comes to the Clarendon campus. Always love getting to be here when I get to do it, and I'm grateful for the diverse set of gifts in this body. So yesterday, I could barely speak, and I thought I was going to have to call Pastor Nate Wagner at 6 a.m. today as a belated Christmas gift to tell him to preach last minute. Um, but Jenny, who is leading us in worship, yes, I'm calling you out. Uh, she gave me these uh, like herbal balls filled with the elixir of life. I don't know what was in there. Maybe I disqualified myself by taking them. But I am speaking, and so uh, Jenny, thank you very much uh, for that. You're 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 a miracle worker. So on that note, uh, open your Bibles to to First John. Uh, so we're continuing in our series in First John. We're going to be in chapter 4 today, verses 1 to 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can uh, please just grab one from the back. You can keep it. That'll be our gift to you. I will also have the, the words up on the screen. So please follow along with me, First John chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and then I will pray after I read. <clears throat> Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world." They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we come to you just completely dependent on you to enable us to embrace your word and walk by it. Uh, shape us, change us, make Jesus more beautiful than he was to us when we woke up this morning. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So First John, he's, it's written by the Apostle John, the very John who walked with Jesus, saw the resurrected Christ. And in this letter, what he's all about is he doesn't want you to have a, a sterile intellectual faith uh, like many people do in the church, but he wants you to, to, to have a faith that, that is shot through with joy, uh, that is filled with deep communion and fellowship with God, and that bleeds into good works. And what he gets at today is he says there, there's a primary hindrance to your joy, there, there's a primary hindrance to deep fellowship with God, and that is the, the power of a lie, the power of a lie. So the, the lies that you believe have, have incredible consequence. So let's, let's think about the power of a lie. We have some obvious ones. So Romeo and Juliet. Romeo believes that Juliet's dead. He kills himself. She wakes up, sees him, kills herself. Happy ending. All based on a lie. Now, what, what about less obvious ones? that shipwreck believers' lives all the time, or just people in general. 
So, so think about these lies. If, if I'm single and I never get married, my life is less than complete. That's a lie. If, if I'm married and I can't have kids, or if I'm married and I have kids and one of those children goes off the rails, I can't be happy. It's a lie. In this world, you can be anyone you want to be, and you can have anything that you set your heart to as long as you work at it with all your heart. Or finally, what about this one? I'm inadequate. I'm unlovable. I'm a burden. No one would actually love me for who I am, including God. These are all lies. And what, what John is getting at here is don't be deceived. That's why in verse 1 he says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. And so what, what he's saying here is d- don't be naive. If, if you think that wandering away from Christ is beyond you, if, if you think that apostasy is something you would never do, you, you are woefully naive. Because people walk away from the faith all the time, starting with just a small lie that grows and grows. Think about the Garden of Eden. That was a lie. Created this whole mess. So what John is going to show us today is three ways to avoid the power of a lie. Three ways to avoid deceit as you navigate life in this world. And what he'll show us is, number one, you need to listen to Jesus. Number two, you need to imitate Jesus. Three, confess Jesus. So three ways to avoid deceit. Listen to Jesus, imitate Jesus, confess Jesus. All right? All right, so number one, listen to Jesus. In, in verse six, what he says is, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. So who's the us? This is the apostles, and in John chapter 14 and, and chapter 16, uh, shortly before Jesus was crucified, what he tells his disciples is that when I go, when I ascend, I'm going to give you my spirit, and he is going to call into remembrance everything that I taught you and declare, them, declare to you everything that you need to know about myself, because I'm commissioning you to tell the world about who I am and, and what I've done. And so what this means is that All the letters in the New Testament, we have the Gospels, right, where we have the words of Jesus himself. And then the rest of the New Testament are written by the apostles, such as John here, uh, Paul, Peter, and so forth. To, To read the words of the apostles is to read the words of Jesus. And Jesus himself also held to every word in the Old Testament. So, so the, the, which is written by himself, the, the, the eternal word himself. And so the entire Bible is, is the words of Jesus, the, the words of God. And so what John is saying is when you, when you come across something, when, when you hear something, map it against God's word and, and you'll see whether it accords with truth or error. If you're listening to a speaker, if they hold to God's word, that, then you know you can trust them. So, quick survey. Anybody, how many people in here saw the movie Inception? 
greatest composer ever, Hans Zimmer, helped direct or compose the music. Okay, great. So uh, enough people, those who didn't see it, hopefully this should still make sense. So uh, in Inception, diehard fans, forgive me for any little uh, mistakes I make in this. But the, the point is, in Inception, you have these characters who go into the dreams of other people. And what would happen is when they would go into these dreams, sometimes they would get so far in that they would forget what was a dream and what was reality. So what they used were these little items called totems. Remember that? Totems. So they were unique to each individual. So it might be a spinning tabletop, a a weighted red die, a a chess piece. And so if, if they suddenly did not know if they were in real life or in somebody's dream, they would take out the totem and there was a little test that they could do with it. And it would tell them, oh crap, you're, you're still in a dream or you, you are in real life. And the point is, the Bible is, is your totem for seeing if something that you're hearing maps against reality. So if you hear anything about what is going to satisfy you most, uh, how human beings should, should treat one another, um, and so on and so forth, how you should handle your money, map it against God's word. And if you're listening to a teacher, whether it's on a podcast or going to conferences or one of us up here, if they are not using God's word as their primary lens, then, then they are not from God, as, as John says here. So very, a concrete example, just uh, the other day I was listening to it. Pretty, it was a pop, it's a popular podcast, and there's a, there's a female minister who came on, and she, there's no doubt she's sincere. She wants to help people, and so she claims to be a Christian. And what she said is, I quote, she, she, was, she was talking, and she says, you know, I don't think the Bible is always the first or best resource in asking questions about what interpersonal relationships between men and women should look like or between the same gender. Now, can we learn from people who aren't believers about how to love our spouses, how to respect other human beings? Absolutely. I've learned many things from my non-Christian family members and friends how to love my own wife better. But the point here is that she's claiming to be a Christian and yet explicitly saying, I'm disregarding the parts of God's word that, that I don't agree with. I don't think the Bible is, is the first or the best resource to go to to see how men and women should, should interact with each other. And so these are harsh words, but what John says is she, she might be sincere, but she's, she's not from God. So, 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 so don't trust somebody who, who says something like that. So as you are as you are listening to voices, as, you, as you're reading God's word, remember that when you read God's word, you're not just reading a set of ideas or a set of propositions, but you're encountering you're encountering a person, Jesus. And when you listen to His words, more importantly, when, when you do His words, you, you you will be out of step with culture at various points, but you will never be out of step with reality. Because all of reality is moving in the direction of Jesus, who's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, of whom his reign and government and of peace there will be no end, and of his rule there will be righteousness and justice forevermore, as Isaiah 9 prophesies. So so listen to his words, obey his words, treasure his words. That's number one. So listen to Jesus, as his words are found in the Bible, to avoid deceit. Okay, so number two, imitate 
Jesus. So for points two and three, I'll mainly be in verses two and three because these, these are the these are at the heart of this passage. And verse two says that every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now the reason why he's emphasizing come in the flesh is because at this time, uh, the, one of the problems was was Jesus fully human? So uh, a number of people believe that there was an eternal Christ who is deity, but he didn't actually become fully human. Today we have the opposite problem, right, where most, most people will say, yes, Jesus lived, but he was nothing more than a, a great spiritual teacher who, over the centuries, uh, deity was ascribed to him, and now it's become one of the most widespread myths that the world has ever seen. So that's not what happened, but it's, it's, it's common sense opinion uh, in today's culture that so Jesus, he, he did live, but of course, of course he wasn't God. And so what John is saying here is, no, Jesus came in the flesh, meaning he, he was fully God, but also fully human. Fully God, fully human. And the reason this matters is because, well, if he wasn't fully human, he wouldn't have actually humiliated himself in his incarnation, wouldn't have actually had to fully depend on God on your behalf. He wouldn't actually be your high priest who knows what it's like to suffer. But most importantly, he couldn't have atoned for your sins, because he, he couldn't have tasted death for many, as Hebrews 2.9 says. And he was fully God, so his death and resurrection had infinite value to give eternal life to anybody who trusts in him. So, so, so that, that's why this matters. Now, what does John mean by whoever confesses Jesus? So first we're going to talk about imitating Jesus. And then we'll talk about confessing Jesus. And I say imitating Jesus because John doesn't put a border between what you acknowledge or, or confessing what you do. Neither does Jesus. There, there's no line between what you believe and, and what you do. So when John is saying when you confess Jesus has come in the flesh, what, what that means is you, you accept him as your Lord and Savior, but also you, you follow him and you imitate him because you're, you're, in, you're united to him. And so what, what does it mean for you all? Because we, we don't think about this enough. If, if you're united with Christ and Jesus was the eternal divine second person of the Trinity who also became fully human in order to reconcile you to himself, what, what does that mean to actually walk in line with your identity, to, to imitate his, carna- his incarnation, so to speak, in how you live? And so we'll, we'll look at, well, there's, there's a ton, but let's look at three. Three, I think that as I was praying over this this week, I, I think uh, I miss a lot and, and we as a church miss. So the first thing it looks like to imitate Jesus specifically in his incarnation is it, it radically shapes your view of singleness. Yes, it radically shapes your view of, of, of singleness. Now, a quick due diligence in the beginning is, is marriage God's good design? Yes. Is it God's design for many, probably the majority of people, to, to be married? Yes. Does marriage uh, image Christ in the church? Yes. Further, singles, is it possible that you are single? Is it, is it, hear me, is it possible that you are single because you love your autonomy too much? Because you fear becoming too vulnerable with somebody else and putting yourself out there? or because you have way too high standards for a spouse. Yes, it's possible. However, that said, 
Jesus coming in the flesh and becoming fully human completely reshapes how both married people and singles view singleness. And here, so here's what this means. If, if you view your singleness as living less than a complete life, or if you are a married person and you view singles as somehow living a somewhat deficient life, what you're doing is exactly what John is warning against here. You're denying the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because he was the most fully human person to ever live. And so to say, you need, I need to be married or I need to be romantically involved with somebody to, to have a full, complete life, you're saying Jesus was subhuman. Jesus was the most fully human person to ever live. So, so here's what this, this means for, what this means for our church. So married people. There, there is a culture here, and I know, it's, I know you all would never intend this, but it happens a lot in churches, and it's, it's happened here to enough of a degree that, that I'm saying something. There, there is a bit of a culture here where married people, either through your, your thoughts or, or actions or, or implications, give singles the, the idea that they are somehow less spiritually mature than you. That they can't know as much about God as you can. Now sometimes do singles know less about God? Yes. But also plenty of married people know less about God than than singles. And so just think about how how you view singles. Even just little things that you say that that can indicate that. Do do you make a point to regularly spend time with with singled people? Or do you only spend time with those who have kids or, or those who are married? And, and, and for singles, I, I want to both encourage you and, and, and challenge you. The, the, the encouragement is, is first of all, you, you, have, you have so much to offer this church, both because of a unique perspective you're going to have and because you are going to have certain margins that married people or people with kids do not have. Further, if you long for a spouse... Take those, take those frustrations, take that anger, take those hopes to God and, and tell him that you, that you long for a spouse and, and ask for one. And yet, here, here's, the, here, here's the challenge. Be so careful of, of buying the lie that, that if you remain single, you cannot live a full life. Because Jesus himself was single. And this is why Jesus says he, he is the bread of life because he is the one who ultimately satisfies your soul. At the end of history, you will be married to him, brought to him as his dazzling bride. And that will be so splendidly satisfying and unmistakably real. All of us, married and singles, will be united to Christ in marriage. Okay, so first, the incarnation, imitating Jesus, changes your view of singleness and whether you are married or single. Okay, number two, imitating Jesus in his incarnation, uh, it, it impacts how you, you become a person who initiates and pursues reconciliation. So the entire point of Jesus' incarnation was to die to his rights and pursue people at infinite cost to himself because you wronged God, and so he came to you to provide a way to have a relationship with God based on grace. So 
reconciliation really, really matters to God. And yet, for, for a number of you, I, I don't think reconciliation is as important to you as, as, as it is to God. So, so the question is, do you make, if there is any bitterness you have toward anybody, are you making every effort you can to reconcile with that person? If there's any type of wall between you and another individual, are you doing everything you can to restore unity with that individual? Because that, that's what Jesus did for you, and this is what God, God is all about. And th- this isn't a- abstract, because we, we've, we're, we're a family. Hey, we, we can talk about this, right? We, I think with, with our culture here in Arlington, when it comes to when there's strife in a relationship, you often have two responses. who either fight, you just get right at it. Okay, you, you, you have to tell me I'm right, and I won't shut up until you tell me I'm right. Or, or you flee. So you, you sweep things under the rug. Just, let's not talk about it. Let bygones be bygones. And that, that's where we tend to land, most of us. And so that there has been conflict in this body, because there's always conflict in any group of people. And we have individuals who have either left the community rather than reconcile, and people in the community who have bitterness or some sort of wall, even small, between them and another person. And so imitate Jesus. Just do what he did for you. Yes, it will be, it will be time-consuming. It will be awkward. It will be messy, because that's what reconciliation is. But make every effort to maintain unity with you, especially your brothers and sisters in the church. So imitating Jesus impacts how you view singleness. You become a person who initiates and pursues reconciliation. And then finally, imitating Jesus in his incarnation impacts your, your, your view of greatness. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1 that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But yet to the world, Jesus was weakness and foolishness. Because... Jesus came into the world not, not as a, a, a general robed in splendor, but he came as a, a poor peasant. He didn't, he didn't primarily perform acts, acts of greatness in front of many, but small, regular, ordinary acts of faithfulness to God and other people, ultimately dying the most shameful death as, as possible on a cross. And this is foolishness to the world because the, 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 the world values strength. It, it values superficial beauty. Both things that Jesus was the opposite of. And so the question is, if your Savior and the head of your household had a very upside-down view of greatness compared to the world, how do you live? Because especially in this area, there, there is so much pressure on you to be great. You have to stand out. You have to be brilliant. You have to be beautiful. But what, what John is saying here is that if you are confessing Christ and he came as a human in the flesh, emptying himself of his glory to serve not himself but other people, this is how you will live. And so for me, what this means is at the end of history, when I meet God face to face, you know what he's not going to ask me? At least I don't think. He's not going to ask, Steve, 
Why weren't you an extraordinary preacher like John Piper? Why didn't you write 25 popular level books like Tim Keller? Okay, why didn't you do these amazing things where the whole world knew you? And you know what he's going to say? Have you done the things that I've clearly called you to do? Have you loved Kelsey well and put her needs over the needs of yourself, over your ministry? Did, did you shepherd the flock that I gave you with humility, with, with eagerness, with compassion? Did you reach out to those who had nothing to offer you? Did you treasure me and my word? That's what he's going to ask. And so for you all, what, what does it mean to have this incarnational view of greatness? So for husbands, one thing it certainly means is Jesus isn't going to ask you, while he does, of course, why you to excel in your work, he's not going to say, why didn't you become an amazing CEO? It'll be, were you home on time when you said you were, when you said you would be for your wife? Or to spend quality time with your children? Or for mothers, he's not going to ask you, why did your, why did your child not succeed at everything and become valedictorian and the best athlete? It'll be, did, did you raise your child to, to know me as best as you could, to treasure me? And did you value your child becoming more Christ-like, more than even his or her security or his or her comfort? So for, for all of you in here, are, are you all about getting recognition? It's often not obvious how you do it. There's just in many small ways. Do you, do you crave recognition from others? Do you always pursue people who have something to offer you who can help you move up in the world? Because what God will ask you is, why didn't you reach out to, to those in the church who annoyed you or had nothing to offer you? Why didn't you get to know your neighbors and love them and invite them into your home? Did, did you treasure me? Did, did you seek me? Because this is the air we breathe all the time that greatness is not life like this. And, and so be, be encouraged in the ways that, that you are imitating Jesus in his incarnation, but also take, take a sober look at, at where are you not imitating Jesus in, in his incarnation. Do you view of singleness? Do you pursue reconciliation? And then how do you go about achieving greatness? And the reason this helps you avoid deceit is because the more you imitate Christ, the, the more your confession of faith actually has teeth to it. And, and so the more, the more you imitate Jesus, the, more, the, the greater and more intimate in fellowship with God you'll become, and his voice will become more clear to you because you're living it. Okay, so listen to Jesus and his words in the Bible. Imitate Jesus and his incarnation. And then finally, confess Jesus. So we talked about imitating Jesus, and imitating Jesus is certainly part of confessing Jesus. Um, but it's not the whole thing. So to confess Jesus means, and Nate touched on this a, c- a couple weeks ago, it means you, you acknowledge that Jesus was fully God, fully human, came to earth to live, die, and rise again, not just in general, but for you personally, so that you could have a way, a way to God that's based on grace. And then what it means is not just to acknowledge that, like like the demons believe that he did this, but to say, 
Father, I am trusting Jesus to be in your family based on everything, based on his work, based on nothing that I've done, but based on everything that Jesus Christ has done. This is at the heart of the gospel, and it's what makes Jesus completely different from every other religious founder. And then you follow him. So that's what it means to, to, to confess Jesus. And so here's what this means both when, when it comes to listening to other voices, because that's a lot of what John's getting at here, test the spirits. So you know spirits from God if they confess Jesus has come in the flesh. Spirits not from God if they don't confess. So both what it means when it comes to who do you choose to listen to, and then, and then also how, and then we'll, we'll end with how it actually impacts how, how you live overall in the day-to-day. So when it comes to listening to other voices, okay, can, can other people who aren't believers teach you many things about being a better business person, managing money? Yes, absolutely. What John is getting at here is he's, he's talking specifically about people who are claiming to be teachers of the Lord. And in our, in our current day, there are a lot of speakers and writers who are very charismatic and very gifted, who claim to be Christians. But when, when you hear their words and read their writings, Jesus Christ is, is not at the heart of, of everything that they're saying. So it's a lot of, um, you know, here, here's, how, here's how you can be your true self. Here, here's how you can be empowered. Here's how you can be more confident. And it's a lot of uh, emotion and sentimentality. And I realize I'm stepping on toes here, but this is, I'm just trying to be a, a faithful deliverer of God's word. What, what John is saying is, don't be fooled that the, these are actual teachers uh, of the word, teachers of God. Because, yes, while confidence and, and having a greater sense of purpose, these things are important. Yes, having more empowerment, depending on how, whatever that means, can, can be a good thing. But that's nothing you can't get from Islam. That's nothing you can't get from Buddhism. That's nothing you can't get from yoga. Because all of these things are just other philosophies about what you need to do. When Christianity is all about what Jesus has done for you. And Jesus isn't about helping you just become more confident. He's not about you turning over a new leaf. He's about making you new and making you his. And so if somebody does not have Jesus at the heart of their teaching, then do not be deceived. And if me or any other pastor here is not exalting Jesus, centering on Jesus, praising Jesus in every single sermon, then call us out. Because it's when you, when you confess Jesus as, as central and, and the key to everything is how you know you're from God. So that's how confessing Christ applies to the voices you listen to. And now, what does this mean for, for your day-to-day? First, for those of you who are checking things out, I, I, I hope that you will confess Jesus and, and find the incredible freedom that brings you. And for believers, the, here's why this matters so much. Most importantly for salvation. But second, the reason why you're so prone to be deceived, the reason why you're prone to not want to listen to God's word, you'll prioritize your feelings or what culture's saying over God's word, the reason why you want to live for self instead of imitating the incarnation is, is because in a lot of ways, so it says here that in verse 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That's implied. When, when you receive Christ, God gives you himself. You receive his spirit. And But what happens is, is when you go throughout life, you, you tend to view God as, like, 
one of your relatives who always gives you the wrong Christmas present? Okay, like you know what this is like. Probably, I was just talking with with one of you uh, a week ago or so, and what what you were saying is, yeah, I have this one relative who love them to death, but every single Christmas they they give me dish towels, and I have five drawers of dish towels. I don't need more dish towels. Okay, yes, I don't need this weird plastic thing that's just going to gather dust on on my shelf. And so what happens is is you say, okay, yes, God, you, you humiliated yourself, came into this world, lived, died, rise again on my behalf. At the end of all things, you're going to personally restore, strengthen, and establish me, but I'm still single. But I don't know how things are going to work out financially. But I, I look on social media, and all my friends are buying these amazing houses and settling down with kids and living these, these incredible lives, and I feel so immured, and I don't even know what I'm going to do for a career. Thanks for Jesus, but it's not really what I need. And so you're deceived. At best, you live a life that's just in one foot in Jesus' kingdom and one foot in the world's kingdom. And so what, what you need to do... Jesus needs to become the the most beautiful person who has ever entered your life. And often how that happens, it's through worship like we're doing now, it's through meeting him in his word, being in community, and often how it happens too is is through through image and story. And so in closing, I'm going to give you a story in hopes that Jesus is is beautiful to you again. And you listen to him, and you imitate him, and you confess him. So, enter a story. Many years ago, Tsar Nicholas I of Russia knew a young man for whom he cared a great deal. He was a common man, and as a favor to him, the Tsar had him assigned to a border fortress and put him in charge of the money used for paying the soldiers. The young man started well, but fell into gambling, and eventually gambled away not only his own wealth, but also a a great fortune from government funds. One day, the young man received notice that on the following day, an official would appear to inspect the books. The young man knew he was in trouble, so he went to his room and he took out the records. He totaled up the amount to see what he owed, And then he went to his safe to see how much money he had and to see if he could make good on the debt. And as he feared, he subtracted the lesser from the greater and the shortfall was astronomical. And as he sat looking at the figure he owed, he realized everything was over. So he picked up his pen and he wrote in large letters on the bill, a great debt, who can pay? And then because he knew he couldn't face the shame of what was going to happen, he took out a revolver to kill himself at midnight. And he sat down at his desk, but it was warm and drowsy, and over time he fell asleep at his desk. Now, Tsar Nicholas I, he had an occasional habit of dressing up as a common soldier to go a bit incognito and find out how the other soldiers were doing in the barracks. And so he did so this night. And he's walking around the the fortress where this young man is. And most of the lights are out in the rooms as he's walking down the hall. And as he passes this young man's room, he sees a light shining through the door, shining underneath the door. So he knocks, 
No answer. So he, the door's unlocked. He goes inside, and he sees this young man at his desk, and he sees the records on the table. He sees his small pile of money, and he sees a revolver. And everything became clear in a moment. And as he walked up to the young man, he looked at the bill, and he saw the young man's question, a great debt, who can pay? And moved by an impulse of love, Tsar Nicholas I, he took the young man's pen, and he scribbled a single word at the bottom of the paper, and then he tiptoed out. Now the young man, he woke up, and it was well past midnight, so he picks up the revolver, and he's about to end things. He catches a glimpse of the note he had written, a great debt, who can pay? And then he noticed something. There was a single word scribbled underneath the question. Nicholas. Sar Nicholas the first. So what he did is he ran to a cabinet to grab another paper with the signature of, of this great king, and he matched it with the signature on his bill, and sure enough, it matched. It was the real thing. And so he said to himself, the king has been here tonight and he knows all my guilt. He's seen me to the bottom and he's undertaken to pay my debt and I don't have to die. So instead of taking his own life, he rested on the word of Nicholas. And sure enough, the next day, a messenger appeared with the precise amount that he owed for the debt. Don't you see? Jesus Christ, you're a great king. He came into this world disguised as a human in the flesh. When he saw you at your worst, he saw you all the way to the bottom and he loved you to the heavens. And he looked at the ledger of your life that begs the same question that this young man asked, a great debt, who can pay? And he wrote a single name under the question. Jesus. Jesus. He didn't just pay money. He gave his very life. And that, that is why we sing that wonderful hymn, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You settle for far too little. Why don't you listen to him? Treasure his words. Imitate him. Confess him and, and rejoice in who he is. Knowing that, that yes, it's, it's difficult, but, he, but he's given you his spirit. That's why John writes in, in verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he, Jesus, who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that every single person in here, uh, including myself and you, will be utterly captured by what you've done for us. 
Help us to, to listen to you, to not be deceived by their voices, either our own or voices in the world, to imitate you joyfully. And for those who don't know you now, to confess you for the first time, and for all of us believers here, to remember the joy of our salvation. It's in the name of Jesus, our risen and most high King, we pray. Amen.